Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Greetings, Auditorium 2. You guys look beautiful across the way. If you are new here and you are visiting with us, we're especially glad to have you. If you have any questions at all about life here at Fellowship Greenville, please stop by our first-time guest center, which is over here uh, in the commons near Auditorium 1, and we have a team there that would love to serve you and help you in any way that they could. And members and regulars, you should know the drill by now. All the lovely, beautiful, wonderful people, your friends and mine who work at Next Steps Table. If you want to get further involved or you need a refresh reminder on this Bible study or that mission trip or this community group opportunity, go to Next Steps and bother the wonderful people out there. Also, I get to issue my own uh, thank you to all of you, even if you're just second service people. Uh, and, and thanks our tech team and uh, everybody involved. It was so beautiful how quick we made everything happen uh, last night um, while we were all secretly singing I Saw the Light Inside of Our Hearts. So uh, our, our team's incredible and wonderful here. Um, so thank you guys for, for all that. Most of you know this. We're in a series right now, a summer series, and we're calling it Here Is Your God. And this is what we're doing all summer long. Each Sunday, we're asking, hey, what is God really like? And then we're answering it each week by talking about a, a different uh, attribute of God. That's what we're doing each, ser uh, each sermon this summer. And this question and all of our answers to it matter more than we can imagine, especially with today's attribute, love. Now, it especially matters with love because this characteristic of God is one of the dominant ways that he is described in Holy Scripture. So... It is crucial that we think well about it as we consider what God is really like. And to do that today, we are going with the classic, like if John 3.16 is the most popular single verse in the Bible, this might be the most popular chapter. We could take a vote maybe. Uh, 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 13. So if you want to go ahead and get there in your Bibles, that would be good, great, fine, wonderful, awesome. Take your time, hurry up. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We will get there in a few minutes, I promise. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, even though it's becoming tougher and tougher with scheduling and finding time, one of my favorite things that I love about my job is getting to do weddings of people that I know and love and care for. And I always feel so honored to do the ceremonies of friends who were former interns or former students or friends here at church. And at this point, I have attended and been a part of and officiated so many dozens of weddings that I really do think I will be a next level, really legit wedding planner. So I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn that I never use. I fully believe that with all my heart. Um, on top of this, I have done weddings in the rain, weddings on islands you can only get to by boat. That was a fun one. Weddings here at church, weddings on mountains, weddings in fields, weddings barefoot. One wedding was in July, hear me, pay attention, in July at the University of Georgia Chapel at 2 p.m. And are you ready for it? The AC broke at 1.30, all right, and a groomsman passed out and knocked over a huge fern, all the while, minimally 150-pound bumblebee was buzzing from bridesmaid to bridesmaid. It was the best movie I've ever, ever seen in my whole life. It was wonderful. It was incredible. <clears throat> Also, one wedding had their reception in my backyard. The DJ brought a portable dance floor. My neighbors adored it. A, a, a little bit ago, I got the supreme blessing uh, recently, not of officiating, but of getting to walk my friend Hayden down the aisle, which was such an honor. I've also done weddings where I've worn a robe. I don't think there are photographs of that. Weddings with thick family drama. Weddings where I 
kind of mispronounced the couple's last name for my last line in the whole service. Maybe just a little bit. You can trust me, it's okay. I just did my first ever Monday wedding at 10.30 a.m. And in the biz, that's what we call a money saver, kids. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> now, I think <clears throat> the point and all of this is I really do enjoy, I love, love, love seeing all the different ways that people want to go about and celebrate their sacred day. Like every wedding is its own cute little snowflake and fingerprint. And I love, love, love um, how everybody just kind of wants to do it their own way. And when I say they, I mean the bride, like, dude, you shut up. You, she gets whatever she wants. Okay. That, that's what I mean. <clears throat> now, with all the variables involved that you can juggle and toggle for a wedding day, there is one part of the ceremony that I uh, really lovingly refuse to change. In my little wedding sermonette, when I talk about love, I always draw a stark contrast between our personal or cultural definitions of love and the Bible's definition of love. Because here's the deal. When we're left to ourselves, you know what we do? We make love so whiny and sappy and emotional and sentimental. It's all about just whether or not we feel loved in a single moment. And if that's the definition of love that you take with you into marriage, you are in for the rudest of awakenings. Just do this for a second. Think about your experience with the word love. Like how do you use it? How is it used around you? <laughs> how has it been used around you growing up? Like on a simple scale, very simple scale, it is terribly odd that we say I love you to family and friends and then we say the same thing to Waffle House and the Gamecocks. Like that shouldn't, that's absurd. It's just messed up to use the same word for each of those. Or if I like tap that little heart thing in a text message to you, it says, Jim loved your message. Really? Like what level of adoration are we talking about here? Some of you guys might know the five love languages, quality time, gifts, words of affirmation, acts of service, and physical touch. Well, myself and Mike Hawkins, we are huggers. There he is. Oh my gosh. Mike Hawkins and I. He's asking me if he wants me to come hug me. Bro, I'm trying to quit, please. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Most of the time, Mike and I are always down for a snuggle, generally speaking, but I'm trying to do the thing right now, bro, okay? All right? <laughs> um, so that's one of the ways, so sorry. I, you can't apologize for him enough. Uh, that's one of the ways that Mike and I experience love is that we're huggers. That's, that's the deal. But uh, here's also the deal when it comes to like five love languages stuff. That might not be the way you experience love. And that's tough for huggers like me. But let's say that you grew up in a house and your dad gave you the obligatory I love you when you were growing up. But on occasion, he was like emotionally manipulative or maybe even physically threatening. And if that's part of your story, I'm so, so, so sorry. But guess what? What if that makes you a little fearful of people who experience love through physical touch? Then like, what do we do? Or maybe, maybe you dated a guy a couple years ago and everything was going so great for a few months. You're like, this is the, what, this is the dude, like the one, this is, that's him. And then finally, a few months into the thing, <clears throat> he says, I love you for the first time. And you're like, I know God, I get it. I see it, Lord. This is the one. And then within 10 days of, I love you for the first time, he breaks up with you. Like we know, we know that's not love. And on more than one occasion this year, I've heard of married couples who proudly tout the modern slogan, love is love, on their car or on their social media, which is a discussion unto itself. But then one of them in the marriage decides they want to change themselves or change teams, and then they end up divorcing the other person. And so you have to ask, well, does that, does that affirm or does that undermine their touted modern adage, love is love? 
And I'll just tell you outright, if I do your wedding, if I get the blessing and privilege and honor of doing your wedding, this will be the most unromantic few seconds of your wedding day because I will say the following, and you might disagree, we can talk about that, but at nearly every wedding, I say this. When I hear people say that they're not in love anymore, what I usually hear is that they were only in in it for themselves to begin with. You've been warned. There it is. (laughs) But why? Why do I feel the need to say that? Again, because there is a chasm of difference between our personal or cultural definitions of love and the Bible's definition of love. Cultural definitions of love are fickle and wishy-washy and self-defeating. They are often based on a surface-level function or tolerance and not deep relational conviction. Meaning, when we push on our definitions of love long enough, we will slowly realize that they're usually not about something that's real and true and lasting and beautiful, but usually they're about coddling our really fragile egos. That's what they're about. However, when you open the Bible, God's word, we have something different from these flimsy definitions of love. The Bible says things like his love endures forever. Love never fails. No footnote. They will know, not scratch their heads with curiosity, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another, Jesus told his friends. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out all fear. Greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. And the two commandments in the Bible that sum up every other commandment are love God and love others. And in our classic text today, Paul says these three abide, faith and hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. And here's the deal. As humans in general, and Jesus' followers in particular, we know that love has to be, it has to be bigger than our experience of it. That's why we keep pursuing the thing. We know that it has to be pure and it has to be lasting. But still, quite often, a faithful definition and experience of love often feels right out of reach. And so today, we're gonna steal Paul's language from 1 Corinthians 13 and ask The question, why is love the greatest virtue? That's our question for today. Why is love the greatest of these? And asking this will eventually take us back to God and how love is one of the chief ways that we should think about him and talk about him. And considering the mechanics of all this will aid us as we think about why is love the greatest virtue? And to answer this question, we will look at the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you want to open that back up in your Bibles, we will look at verses one through 13. And here, Paul gives us one of the clearest biblical portraits of love. And I think it's gonna change the way we think about God and marriage and relationships and others and all of life. So here we go. Why is love the greatest of these? First Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all I have to the poor and I deliver up my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. Prophecies, though, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall fully, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now abide these three, faith and hope and love. The greatest of these is love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, this passage has nothing to do with weddings or marriage. There you go. I said it. Although, although, I think it's really lovely and wonderful in that context, and I've been asked to use it multiple times when officiating. This passage, however, is actually the meat on the spiritual gifts sandwich. What in the world do I mean by that? Thank you so much for asking. I mean this, that 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is the longest discussion about spiritual gifts in the entire Bible. It's Paul's longest discussion about this, period. Chapter 12 is about the gifts, chapter 14 is about the gifts, and the meat in between those buns is chapter 13. It's all about the gifts and the ultimate gift, love. Also, I'm so sorry that I can't not do this, and for Bonus Bible nerd points, here we go. The literary structure of chapter 13 itself is terribly fascinating. It's, a, it's, far, sorry, it's a sandwich unto itself. The first few verses are about love and the spiritual gifts. The last few verses are about love and the spiritual gifts. And dead center in the middle of the sandwich within a sandwich, it's only about love itself. Love is patient, it's kind, and so forth. <clears throat> And I hope that's cool to you to see what Paul is doing literarily to make us focus on what love truly is. And perhaps at this point you're thinking, Jim, I thought this was supposed to be about the attributes of God and not weddings and sandwiches and spiritual gifts. What's the deal? Again, thank you for asking. Here's what I think the deal is. I think that when Paul gets to this middle section about love, he wants us to think about God's love to us as the main reason why, and the best example of how we're supposed to be loving others. And part of the reason why love is the supreme spiritual gift is because it always has to do with who God truly is, and that's what we're gonna explore. And here's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna answer our question, we're gonna do three things. We're gonna answer our question, and then we're gonna see how we should respond and be changed because of that. And then three, we're gonna look at how our question and response, or how our answer and response should take us to Jesus and the cross. So three things, answer, response, gospel. <clears throat> answer, response, gospel. So first of all, our question is, why is love the greatest of these? And here's our answer, and every single word counts, and we're gonna talk about all the pieces of it. 
<clears throat> because love in the Bible is God's eternal, delightful, committed, self-giving posture and activity toward his people. Again, we're gonna repeat this so much today. Why is love the greatest virtue? Because love in the Bible is God's eternal, delightful, committed, self-giving posture and activity towards his people. Now, I think this is a great way to sum up how a lot of the Bible talks about love, but I also think it's a great way to put all of 1 Corinthians 13 into a little capsule and a single sentence here. So let me show you why this is our answer, and we're actually going to work backwards through the passage to see this. Some of you at this juncture might be paying keen attention to the passage itself and seeing that God is not really even mentioned at all and go, well, Jim, how can you give a definition like that if God's not deliberately mentioned or clearly mentioned in the whole passage? Well, look down at verse 13. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest is love. So you ready for this? God does not need faith. He doesn't need to have faith. He's the object of our faith. Our faith is in him. God doesn't need hope. He is the source of our hope. But Paul's well aware, because he's a a Hebrew Bible teacher, of what the rest of the Bible says, that God is love. And what Paul is saying in this last section, in verses 8 through 12, is that there are a lot of good gifts that we have that we should enjoy. Here, it's about spiritual gifts, like prophecy and stuff. But those things, look at verse 10, those things will fade when the perfect comes. That's at the great consummation in the future. But hey, guess what will not fade? Guess what's not going anywhere and lasts forever? Love. So faith and hope will dissolve one day, like the old hymn says, when our faith shall be sight. Look at also how this final paragraph begins. Look in verse eight. Love never ends. And the only thing in the entire universe that truly possesses eternality unto itself is God himself. So that's why we're saying that love in the Bible is God's eternal posture and activity. Now let's think for a moment about the word delightful. This is actually so obvious that I could kind of skip it, but I don't want to presume on anything here. Uh, Just think for a moment about the stuff that you love. The stuff that you love is also the stuff that makes you happy. Those things come together. Like if I officiate your wedding, you can't stand in front of me and in front of all your friends and family and confess your love to your husband and also not simultaneously delight in him because love and delight are a package deal. They come together. However, this is, it's not in our definition primarily because it seems logical to us, but because scripture teaches it. Look at verse six. Put your finger on verse six. Look, look, look. <clears throat> the verb rejoice or delight is used twice in verse six. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This means <clears throat> that love, true love, takes joy in those things which are right and faithful and beautiful and unfailing. It doesn't rejoice in our perception of the truth, but in the truth itself. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing or unrighteousness. Uh, The Greek word is actually injustice. Love doesn't rejoice in injustice, but it rejoices with the truth. Real love delights in those things that are consistent with reality. Now, I don't know what way you're abstractly thinking about those things, but again, I think this is what Paul wants. And I think this is what he's getting to, he's pushing on. He wants us to think about this as it relates to God. And guess what that means? This is really good news, you ready? God loves loving you. 
He's overwhelmed with it. He, he loves loving you. He takes great delight and joy in calling you his. He does. He knows the truth that we are broken and we are needy and we are fragile apart from him. He knows that we are all a work in progress and need to depend on him more and more, but it makes him so happy to pursue us, to save us, to rescue us, to be faithful to us. And I don't think some of you believe that and live like that's true. If love rejoices in the truth, that means God loves loving you. He does not regret saving you. He's not bummed to show compassion to you. He's not reluctant to extend his grace and his kindness to you. God does not roll his eyes when he provides for you. To me, this is so beautiful. But how do we know that it's true? Because real love which is eternal and only God is eternal, real love delights and it delights in the truth. I think that's beautiful. I think it's good news and this should start to get the wheels turning. It should start to think, uh, change things for us. Now I'm gonna put it up again so that you know where we're going and what we're doing again. Love in the Bible is God's eternal, delightful, committed and self-giving posture and activity towards his people. So we've done eternal and we've done delightful. What about committed? Where is that in our passage? Uh, What about committed? Now, here we need to slow down for a second and notice something that Paul does in his definition of love, especially because we know this and we like feel it in our gut. Um, Look at how many times, look in your, look in your, uh, in your passage right here. Look at how many times Paul says what love isn't or what it doesn't do. He's defining love by the negative. Start in verse four. Look at four. Uh, patient kind, but then he says, love, it doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. So through your days, when you're envious, or when you're arrogant, or when you're boastful, or when you feel like you want to stick your chest out to be like, I've arrived, I've done something. That is not the love of God that he wants you to participate in and reflect. And look, Paul keeps going. It's not arrogant or rude. Let's skip that one. I love, I love what the NIV does here. Uh, it says, it's not self-seeking. Are your days qualified as self-seeking? Mine are. That's not the love of God. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. And I think when Paul says what love isn't and what it doesn't do, I think it resonates so much with me because I think we all kind of know what love is not and we recognize it. Like it's not love if somebody promises you they're gonna come help you or gonna do something with you and time and time again, they drop the ball and they bail. It's not love when he says I love you and 10 days later he breaks up with you. We know, hey, that's not it. We know that's not it. It's not love when he says I love you and then he's emotionally manipulative or physically threatening or abusive. We can clearly recognize what love isn't. But is there a way to state all these things in the positive? I like the word committed. I think it's a great way to affirm the opposite of what Paul says in verses four and following. And we also know at an instinctive level that part of the nature of real love should be its permanence. Like we know that. Also, the word things were committed is a good way to echo what Paul says at the very end of verse seven. Look down at the very end of verse seven. Love endures all things, right? So God's love is not eternal and delightful, but simultaneously unfaithful and fickle. Hey, he's not, hey, he's not falling in and out of love with you. There's not a day in the future where he's going to divorce you. 
God is not going to change his mind about you because you have had a bad day, week, month, or year. That's not going to happen. If you are a part of his family through his son, Jesus, his love for you is delightfully and forever fixed upon you. And the big fun Bible word for that is covenant. Covenant is all about a partnering and loving commitment. And because Paul has the whole Hebrew Bible memorized, he's a Hebrew Bible teacher, these are the things in the back of his mind as he pens this classic text. So, eternal, delightful, committed. Now let's talk about self-giving for a second. Self-giving. Look at the very beginning of verse Four, very beginning of verse four. Love is patient. <clears throat> now, we're gonna attempt to be Greek scholars for just a moment. Uh, the Greek word patient is makrothumia. That's the word for patience, makrothumia. We still use the, the prefix there, macro, big, long, uh, extensive, <clears throat> uh, makrothumia. And thumia is the word for suffering. So this is good old King Jimmy, long suffering. It's where you get patience from, from the King James right there, <clears throat> long suffering. But something needs to be said right here. The suffering in the long suffering of patience, which is the word, <clears throat> the suffering isn't necessarily physical pain. This patience, this long suffering, it's based on a willingness to sacrificially give of yourself for the sake of other people. It's long suffering to be to and for and with someone you love when they're going through a hard time or a tough road. And I think there's something very specific that we need to notice here. I always say that the primary ways that our culture defines love, twofold, tolerance and sex, tolerance and sex, those are the two ways. And I do think it's really interesting that the first way our culture defines love is tolerance because they're so close. Because the first way that Paul defines love is patience. And on the surface, tolerance and patience can look like almost the same thing. But we need to dive below the surface and notice a distinction here because they can look alike on the surface. Tolerance means, you ready? It means I don't necessarily have to have a relationship with you, but I can step back and I can step out of your way and I can let you do whatever you want. Not so with patience, not so with macrothumia, with long suffering. Real Bible patience requires, requires a loving relationship. And it's me sacrificially giving of myself to you and for you to be with you, to walk with you through whatever you're going through. There's a commitment there. This is why tolerance is the parody of which patience is the reality. That's, I, I think that's huge especially given our day. Tolerance is the parody of which patience is the reality. And that's why real love is about commitment and and it's self-giving, it's long-suffering. And this is why Paul starts his definition of love with love is patient. Now, I could talk for an hour about this, but the last little phrase in our definition says God's posture and activity. And it simply means that love is about, yes, who God is, but it's also about what God does, posture and activity. It's not just a feeling, it is likewise an action. It's about being and doing, or to pretend to be uh, smart, it is about uh, an ontological reality and a functional reality, posture and activity. All right, last time, because I I want this uh, to happily haunt you, why is love the greatest of these? Thank you so much for asking, because love in the Bible is God's eternal delightful, committed, self-giving posture and activity towards his people. This 
is what God is really like. This is his essence. This is his character. You can't talk about love in the Bible without simultaneously talking about God. Also, you should thank me. I saved us a big theological migraine because I wanted to talk about how God's love in the Bible is his posture and activity towards himself and his people. Because in the three persons of the Trinity, God has eternally and delightfully and committedly given of himself in communal love between Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity past, which is a category-crushing pre-lunch migraine. I totally understand. But the point is, when you talk about love, it better be about God, at least if your Bible is open. And that's why I will not stop saying love in the Bible is about God's eternal, delightful, committed, and self-giving posture and activity towards his people. We've also been quoting uh, A.W. Tozer every week in this sermon series about God's attributes. And I love what Tozer says here about uh, God's love and about how it echoes so much of what we're thinking. He writes, from God's other attributes, we may learn much about his love. We can know, for instance, that because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. Good grief, A-dub. That's unbelievable. Now, hold on. Look at this. <clears throat> Look at the last few lines there. He can't talk about God's love without eventually, without eventually talking about our response to God's love. And so we answer our question. I told you we're going to respond and go to the gospel. <clears throat> so let's think about our response to this. Based on 1 Corinthians 13, if our definition of God's love is true, what should we do about it? <clears throat> How should we respond? Now, uh, some of you might know this story, and for some of you, this might be a fragile story or a difficult story to hear. Um, <clears throat> Robertson McQuilkin attended and then became the president of Columbia International University several decades ago. <clears throat> it's where I got my master's degree. It's where my mom just retired from uh, last month, 10 points mom. Um, he actually, Robertson McQuilkin, <clears throat> met his wife, Muriel, as they were students at CIU, and she uh, then eventually taught at the school while he was president. Just an adorable, sweet, cute little uh, Christian education love story. It's what we all dream of, I know. <clears throat> now, they were married in total for 55 years. They had six children, and they spent 12 of those years in the middle in Japan doing mission work. <clears throat> However, in the late 90s, excuse me, the early 90s, uh, their love story went viral, viral because uh, Muriel was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and quickly became really, really scared to be without <clears throat> Robertson her loving husband. However, Robertson still had probably about a decade, maybe a dozen years of still fruitful ministry before him at CIU. In fact, some of the really godly people that he sought counsel with said, hey man, you just need to put her in somebody else's care, put her in a home and just go be with her whenever you can because we really think God has so much more for you here at CIU. Also <clears throat> around this time, uh, Pat Robertson, eye roll, came out and said that it was okay to divorce your spouse if they got Alzheimer's. This was like something that he said in like popular Christian circles of the day in the 90s. So what did McQuilkin do? 
he retired early and he spent the last 12 years of her life and their marriage almost every day by her side. And why did he do that? Because love is patient and it's kind, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. It endures all things. There's not a footnote in 1 Corinthians 13. Because true love is committed and it's self-giving. Love never fails. In an interview with Christianity Today, McQuilkin said, although heavy, the decision took no great calculation. It was just a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before at our wedding to love her in sickness and in health till death do us part. This was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me almost four decades with marvelous devotion, and now it was my turn. And such a partner she was, if I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. And that is why I refuse to change talking about biblical love in my wedding sermons. Because it is precisely what we are called to. <clears throat> That's the exact picture <clears throat> we're called to emulate. So married people, here we go, up here, married people. <clears throat> do you, do you think like this? Do you live like your marriage is a contract that you can dip out of occasionally and come back whenever it feels most comfortable for you? Or do you see your union with your spouse as bound covenant love before God? Do you, married people, do you see your marriage as an opportunity to know God's love more by freely extending it to your spouse? Are you living in the shadow of this? And to all of us, <clears throat> Robertson's example of love is but a snapshot of God's love to us. So use it, use it as fuel to think about your life. Feel how modest and also how annoying this question is. Are you ready? Here we go, here we go. Were you patient this week? I'll help. No. Were you, hey, were you this week, were you long suffering? Macrothumia, patient. Were you? Were you, were you self giving in that? Or did, did you insist on your own way? I mean, I'll give you Sarah's number right now. I wasn't. I was absolutely not. I failed big time on loving patience this week. There are plenty of times when I tried to make my marriage about me, when I was subliminally keeping a record of wrongs, when I wanted my marriage, our relationship, my relationship with my wife to be something that's for me ultimately. And none of those instances serve the divine beauty of love is patient. I'm also saving you 16 hours because we could go through the whole list. Hey, were you kind this week? <clears throat> were you kind? Or did, did you go, you know what? Hey, you know what? People owe me, man. Or were you just too scared to do anything because you, you were like, maybe I'll do it wrong if I start to engage with kindness? Or were you like, you know what? I'll be kind when somebody's kind to me first. Love in the Bible is both a posture and an action. So how much of your time was filled with passivity and inactivity and not love, active kindness. 
Now, for a really practical response, here's something I would actually do. I would get the old note card, good old like take notes in high school, two by three or whatever they are, five by seven. And I would write down, I would do bullet points, every single description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And then I would go get another translation of the Bible aside from the one that you normally use. And I would just enumerate the list and make it longer and longer. And I would take that, take that little note card and I would keep it in my Bible or I would keep it in a book that I was reading. And just throughout my days, I would go, you know what? God's been loving to me. He hasn't been rude to me. Am I rude to other people? Well, she was a bad waitress. It's not what I asked. God's been loving and not rude to me. Am I rude to others? God doesn't resent me. Am I resentful to others? I didn't ask whether your kid obeyed. That's not what I asked you. Are you resentful? God's not irritated with me. Have I been irritated with other people? Have I only, oh, this one hurts. Have I only complained about lies or have I actually rejoiced in the truth? Some of you are like, yeah, love and truth. No, 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 the accent's on the rejoice part. I didn't say complain about lies and roll your eyes because you have to deal with the truth. Have you rejoiced in the truth? That is love. That is divine love in sacred scripture. And there are dozens of other ways that we could come up with questions from this passage to ask our own hearts based based on these verses. And so I, I encourage you to do something like that. However, no matter what way we seek to love other people well, we must always remember always that the call to do so is from God himself and the primary example of how to do so is God himself. Or put just a little bit differently, I love all the millions of different ways, hundreds of different ways that people go about their wedding day. I love it, love it, love it. Guess what that also means? There are hundreds and millions of different ways to creatively love other people. There are, but at the root of it, at the core of it, the thing that will not change is not to indulge their most recent desire, but to extend God's perfect love to them, the perfect love that casts out all fear, the perfect love that is committed. That is the thing that the world needs most, that we need most. And this divine love is most clearly seen in Jesus. The pinnacle act of God's love in all of human history is the cross of Christ, and this is the gospel. How did God express his eternal committed love for his people? <clears throat> what did he do? He gave himself in the person of Jesus. And Jesus gave himself at the cross. This is the content and substance of which Robertson's example <clears throat> is but a shadow. The cross of Christ is where divine love is most flagrantly and gloriously seen. Jesus, our substitute, was given the whole for the broken, the holy for the unholy, the righteous for the unrighteous, the blameless for the guilty. He freely offered himself up as our representative that all who trust him and have faith in him would eternally delight in God's love. And this, friends, this is as close to the heart, the essence, the ethos of love that we can get to. This is as close as it gets that love is divine and that love gives. That is as close as we can get to what true, true love really is. That it's divine and it gives. And the rest of the New Testament bears this out perfectly. Just listen. John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all who believe would have eternal life. Romans 5, God shows us his love and that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. 
Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Also, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. 1 John 3, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we, now we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 1 John 4, this is love, not that you love God, that's not love, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Revelation chapter one, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. Here's the deal, you ready? Here is your God, arms stretched out in forgiving love, ready to embrace all who come to him. Here's your God, eternally, delightfully, committedly, giving of his own life so that you would live. Here is your God who enters your mess, understands your pain, empathizes with your weakness, carries your burdens, gives grace upon grace, and died to make kingdom come in our midst. And here's the best thing about all of this. This is what God is actually, truly, and really like. He is a God of love. Make no mistake about it. And may we now, Holy Spirit, please help. May we respond to his great love in total dependence upon him and in total deference of love to other people. May the cross of Jesus fuel our faith in him and shape our love to other people. As one of your pastors, when I pray for this church, I pray that that is true, that the cross of Jesus will be the thing that shapes us, that fuels our trust and our faith in him and shapes our love to one another in the world around us. Please let it be, Lord. So, Fellowship Greenville, I've got really good news. These three abide, faith and hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. And that is what's God, what God's really, really like. And today, I hope you're trusting his great love for real life, both now and forever. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, I'm going to believe what Paul said in Romans 5, that you yourself are the love of God in person poured into our hearts. And so would you, Holy Spirit, make us obsessed with and grateful for and overjoyed at the Father's love revealed in Jesus? Please, Holy Spirit, just stir that in us. Jesus, may your example of sacrificial love be the thing that defines us, that people in the community and around the world, they can't talk about Fellowship Greenville without also simultaneously saying, man, they are a church of self-giving love just like Jesus. Please, please, please. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son and your spirit to make us a people of love. Would you make us stand in awe of your great love? Jesus, we love you and we trust you. You're the best. Amen. Amen.